welcome everyone. Whether you're, uh, you've joined us at a watch party or you're somewhere else, I'm really glad that you've joined us today and I trust that this is going to be an encouraging time for you. We're going to be doing something that is, uh, is a little bit sobering today. We're going to be looking at what the Bible says about plagues. In a time like this, there's lots of loud voices in our ears. Uh, scientists and politicians and even friends on social media all giving us opinions and ideas of what's going on in the world right now. And what I'd like to be able to do today is to take a step back from that and look at what God is saying about what's going on in a time such as this. Uh, and a place that we can start is in Leviticus 26. It says this in verse 14, But if you will not listen to me and carry out all these commands, then I will do this to you. I will bring on you sudden terror, wasting diseases, and fever. I mean, this is very sobering. But what God's saying here is that I'm actually the source of plagues and fever and diseases. They actually come from me. In Genesis, uh, Jeremiah 32, verse 42, it says this, For thus says the Lord, Just as I brought all this great disaster on this people, so I am going to bring on them all the good that I am promising them. So God seems to be comfortable with being the source of both all that's wrong and comes against us, as well as all the blessings that, he, that we experience. And this is just a, a shocking thing to think about. I want to be able to have a picture of God where all good things come from him and then all harmful things come from the devil. It's just a very easy way to think. It's simple. The only problem with it, scripture doesn't support it. Scripture actually says that both of these things come from God. The challenge that we have as we think about this then is that it ends up confirming people's suspicions. If you try to share your faith with people who don't yet know Jesus, or even working through things in your own heart, I think that all of us are worried that God isn't truly good. We are concerned that there's kind of two sides to God, his angry, wrathful side, and then his loving side. And we're really never sure which side is going to show up first, and uh, which is going to have the final say. And so, uh, what I think that we want to do in a way to kind of um, defend God or, or uh, give better publicity to him is to somehow deflect all that's negative in the world onto some other cause. We'll say that it's perhaps a natural consequence that God kind of has set the world in motion and then uh, as, as we make choices, there's consequences of those choices and that's what's ultimately to blame. Or we can say that it's demonic attack and that everything negative that happens in our life is ultimately because of demonic forces. We can even talk about hell this way, where we say that, uh, that you know, hell is, uh, the door to hell is locked from the inside. This idea being that people make a decision to, um, to be in hell and it's not what God wants, which of course is not what God wants, but that somehow it's just all about their decision and God had nothing to do with it. The problem with these kinds of thoughts is that they make God out to be either weak or passive. That he's not really in control of the world, or he is, but in kind of a passive kind of way, where he's not uh, really caring about all that's happening in the world. He's just kind of letting things roll out 
the idea of him being the, the watchmaker and that he set the watch in motion and now he's just kind of watching it all unravel. Uh, but the truth is, and the Bible makes this very clear, that he's in charge. And God is willing to take responsibility for that, for the challenges that go on in the world, as well as the blessings. He's saying, I am in charge of all of this, that ultimately it comes back on me. So if our first problem with admitting that uh, plagues and suffering come from God is that, uh, you know, it kind of confirms our suspicions about God. The second problem is that uh, God says that he sends these plagues because of our sin. So this, I mean, it just goes from, from bad to worse. That Now he's saying that the reason why I decide to send plagues on the earth is because you've sinned. Now this is hard to understand. A few years ago, my, uh, my sister-in-law died of Alzheimer's. And uh, I remember doing the funeral. And can you imagine me saying in front of those people that the reason why Robin passed away was because of her sin? I mean, you just can't say that. Uh, first of all, it's wrong. And it's just cruel. So when God says that the reason why he sends a plague onto the earth is because of our sin, is that what he's thinking about? Is, he, is there some direct correlation between our behavior and the things that happen to us personally? Is that how this whole thing is, is designed? Well, to explain this, I'd like us to look at a specific example in 2 Samuel chapter 24. And this is a time when David took a census in Israel of how many fighting men there were in Israel. Uh, he realized that this was wrong soon after he did it. But the idea was, is that he was putting his confidence in his armies instead of God. And God responded by letting David choose one of three punishments because of him taking this census. And these are the three options. Number one is that he could choose to have seven years of famine or he could choose three months of war that his enemies would fight against him and prevail, or three days of pestilence. So God took this crime of David so seriously that, uh, that this is what he offered to David. Let's pick up the story then in verse 14. This is what David said to Gad, one of the prophets. I am in great distress. Let us now fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. So he's saying, if I have to choose between these three options, I'd rather fall in the mercy of God than give myself over to my enemies. So, verse 15, the Lord sent a plague on Israel from that morning until the end of the designated time. And 70,000 of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. 70,000 people died. When the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord relented concerning the disaster and said to the angel who was afflicting the people, enough, withdraw your hand. And so here we see that mercy that David was anticipating, we see it happening. That, there was, that God's heart was moved and he said, enough, I, I, I can't do more. Then in verse 17, and it's interesting that then after God brings this plague that destroys 70,000 people, 
after he holds back his hand, then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking down the people and said, Behold, it is I who have sinned. It is I who have done wrong. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. So he takes responsibility for this plague. And then in verse 25, thus the Lord was moved by prayer for the land and the plague was held back from Israel. We see these two interesting things that's hard to understand. He, uh, he decides to stop doing the plague and then David repents in a new way. And then it says the Lord was moved by prayer and he stopped the plague. So somehow David was initiating it and somehow God was initiating it. And it's hard to understand this. But we can draw at least two conclusions out of this passage. The first is that David submitted to God as a judge. David submitted to God as a judge. The question that we need to ask ourselves at this time is, are we insulted by God's power to punish? Are you insulted by that? Do you think that God is unjust, uh, unfair, that he decides the good and the evil that would happen in the world? Is that difficult for you? The Bible describes those who go to hell as, as people who are gnashing their teeth. That's not a symbol of suffering. It's a symbol of people who are angry, vehemently angry, saying, how dare you send me here? One of the greatest things that faces us today is us grappling with the truth and the reality that God is a righteous judge and he is ruling the world whether we like it or not. There's something in our soul that that is insulted by that, that reacts against that, and says, how dare you rule me? I find this uh, terrifying, that we can stare God in the face and say, how dare you be my ruler? How dare you to decide whether I experience a blessing or curse in my life? How dare you? I want to be in charge of my destiny. I was, uh, as I was preparing this sermon, I was, I was thinking about somebody who was, uh, who was living with us. And uh, there's a number of people who live in our home, and so we have some expectations of people who would live in our home, just for the safety of our home, for us to be able to get along with one another. And, um, and pretty much uh, every day, this woman was, was violating what we asked of her to do in order to keep our home safe, and a healthy place. And so there came a day when, uh, when she went off to, to, um, to visit somebody and uh, I responded by telling her, uh, you can't live here anymore and I'm asking you to leave. In the days after that, I heard lots of people uh, telling me that she was going around telling people that the pastor uh, kicked her uh, out of his house and how unjust and unfair that was. And she was uh, quite vocal in vocalizing her opinion that I was cruel and unkind and how could somebody who calls himself a pastor treat somebody this way. <clears throat> this reminds me of my own heart that uh, 
when somebody points out something that I do that's wrong, uh, I'm quick to imagine how they're unjust. I'm quick to imagine how I don't deserve what they say about me. And I don't want there to be any consequences to my decisions. I, I, uh, I want to be in control. And I even see this uh, in terms of how parents treat their kids. They just, there, there's this idea that if I'm a good parent, I just only ever say yes. I just only ever do what my children want. And our, our, our children are quick to agree with us and say, you better believe it. And if you do anything that violates my will, you're cruel and unkind and you're an unfit parent. And this is, this, this is the society that we live in right now that anybody who puts anything negative against us, we're insulted and we gnash our teeth at them. I'm reminded of another time in the Bible where there was a plague. And it was when the, uh, the Hebrews were in Egypt. And they were, um, this was the, the 10 plagues, the last one being the most violent of all, where the firstborn um, was going to be destroyed by an angel of death. And how were the Hebrews saved from this plague? Were they better than the Egyptians? Did they, uh, did they deserve more kindness because they were a better people and they, they maybe prayed more or they had a history of, of uh, relationship with God? There's only one thing that saved those people and it was mercy. It was the, the Passover lamb shed for them the blood on the doorposts that told the angel of death to pass by. Uh, I am very, very struck by the fact that all of us are deserving of death. All of us, um, it's, it's, all of us are under the judgment of God. And if it wouldn't be for his mercy, we would all be dead. So point number one is that David submitted to that kind of God. He let himself be ruled by a God who wasn't just a warm, cozy father. He was a God who enforced um, judgment upon him and his people. The second point is that in response to that, David repented over his sin. What I find quite shocking is the word then in verse 17. 70,000 people are killed. God finally lifts up his hand. He can't take any more. And he says to the angel of death, stop. And then David spoke to the Lord. And he says, I've sinned. Like, what does it take for us to come to grips with our sin? 70,000 people die. Then David says, okay, I've sinned. I just find that to be an incredibly shocking thing to hear in Scripture. We see a God who is always bent toward mercy, but it took judgment for David to come to his senses and admit his sinfulness. Here's the issue that we face, is that mercy requires that we admit our guilt. Mercy requires that we admit our guilt. And I think this is tremendously difficult for us to work through. 
uh, I think that we do at least two things to avoid this admittance of guilt. The first thing is that we embrace a modern view of mercy. And this view of mercy is kind of like um, God looking down at us and he sees something that we do wrong and he looks down and he says, ah, he says, those are really good people. And I know that they have good hearts deep down and, and they're trying their best. And, and so they made a mistake. And I'm, I'm just going to overlook that because I really, I really trust in, uh, in who they really are. And I just, I just want to be able to overlook that. Uh, that, has, that has nothing to do with mercy. It has to do with a casual view of the depravity of our sin. I'm sobered by that. The second thing, which I think is even, is even more true, is that the way that we avoid repenting is that we blame. One of the things that I find very disturbing right now is to hear people, although get quickly shut down in social media, thank goodness, but I hear people blame certain nations for the problem, and it's always finger-pointing. And I think this is so classic of what we do when we're faced with a... Uh, with something that is costly, something that involves our suffering and other people's suffering, we're just very, very quick to blame and find fault with others. And I think that whether we're minimizing what mercy is or whether we're blaming somebody else, these two things to me are indicative of our own pride that really doesn't admit that we're at fault and that we're the one who is participating in wrongdoing. So what is this plague-producing sin that David participated in. Uh, what would get God so upset that he would actually bring a plague on a people? Well, I think David's sin is our sin, and it's simply this, misplaced confidence. Misplaced confidence. I would rather trust in my own ability. In David's um, instance, I'd rather trust in my army. I'll trust in my intelligence in my hard work. Uh, I'll trust in luck, I hear lots of people say. I'll trust in anything, but I won't trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and new life in him. And I think if there's anything that faces us right now that I, I find uh, that, that I'm struck in my own heart is I think that what's happening in this time is I hope that we're being humbled. And I hope that we recognize that we're not nearly as much in control as we like to think we are. I find a plague to be a very appropriate response to pride and arrogance and independence because it reveals to us that maybe um, we're not as great as we like to think we are. Maybe we're not as in control as we like to think we are. And so God corrects the sin in our heart by bringing something that we can't easily control. And I find that this is as much his mercy as anything else is. And it's a mercy that just as his mercy on the cross cost Jesus his life, now it's a mercy that causes other people their lives, because mercy always involves a cost. But the motive of that is to bring us to our senses and to say that I have committed crimes against heaven that are deserving of death. And somehow, my friends, in this time, we need to come to grips with our own fallenness and not let this moment pass without asking hard questions 
about ourselves. Um, so this brings back to me talking about my, my sister-in-law, Robin. Am I trying to say that at the end of the day, that it is Robin's fault? Absolutely not. Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 6 tells us something that puts this, I think, this whole idea of plagues and um, God's punishment, I think it puts it in a very healthy context. This is what Nehemiah says when he sees the destruction of Jerusalem in his day. I confess, this is him praying to God, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. In Western society, we have a very individualistic view of our lives. Biblically, it doesn't line up. Biblically, sin is seen as much as a social reality as it is an individual reality. Uh, we see this even uh, with Joshua when the Israelites are taking the promised land. And there's one person named Achan who, who takes what he shouldn't have taken as plunder when they, uh, when they went against a city. And now all of the people are judged because of that. That there is a, uh, there is a view that God has that doesn't make sin only individual. Ultimately, of course, we all stand before God and give an account for our lives. But there's another dimension that says that the way that God treats sin in the world is he treats it as a social reality, not just a personal reality. Uh, why is this? Because I think the root sin is our independence. Like the root problem is, hey, I just look out for myself. It's all the way back to Cain and Abel. Am I my brother's keeper? And we seem to have this idea that says that if it's not something that I directly did that's wrong, then I'm somehow innocent. And God's saying, it's not just sins of commission, it's sins of omission that I care about. That if you live a selfish life looking out only for yourself, that is as great a crime as any other crime. And is there anything that characterizes Western society now? Where you have people say, hey, look, I'm just doing fine. I'm just looking out for myself. And God would say to us, how dare you think that way? Can you imagine if I thought that way? You would all be condemned to hell. That the mark of Christianity is that we take responsibility for the well-being of our neighbor. And so my sin has the ability to affect all of those around me and hear this, even those who are innocent, my sin can affect. I think of uh, perhaps the, uh, this is just a very uh, gripping example to me. When I think of, it was a, a number of decades ago now, when the AIDS epidemic was, uh, was a very big deal. Of course, it's still a reality, but it's when it, it, it came to attention. And, and, and what, did the, what did some people inside of the church say? Well, this has come through the homosexual community. It's a sign of God's judgment on them. And, uh, and if you read between the lines, people were saying, well, I think they deserve it. <clears throat> and then a short while ago, I was reading some statistics 
about the LGBTQ community. And it said this, that 87% of people who participate in the gay lifestyle have come from a faith background. That there's something about the way that we do church and Christian community in the worship of God that, uh, that produces this other thing that we would all condemn, but actually has come from us. 87% came from a faith background. What if there's something inside of us that produces that? And as the church would repent, that maybe we would see something change in that community. There's another statistic, I can't remember it now. It says how many of uh, the people in that community would actually want to come back to church? Much higher than the regular population. But maybe there's something in the church, as, as the Bible says, that judgment begins with the household of God. Maybe there's something in the church that we need to grab hold of ourselves before we start pointing the finger at other people. So it's unfair to say that somebody who has cancer or, or some other sickness, that it's their fault. It's a better response to say that there's something true in society that I personally participate in that I need to take responsibility for. So in conclusion, let the suffering and loss of life at this time not be wasted. Let this virus lead us to what is always true. We all need mercy and we all need to repent. Let this time lead us to what's always true. Second Chronicles 7 verses 13 to 14 says this, When I send a plague among my people, this is speaking about this kind of time, when I send a plague on my people, among my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from whose wicked ways? Their wicked ways. Not someone else's wicked ways. Oh, God, forgive them. My wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. What if society doesn't just need our service? What if society needs our repentance? What if the leadership of the church at this moment in time is not to just be kind and generous, which I hope we would be, but is actually to lead the way in repentance and to say, this is my responsibility. This is the result of my independence, of my forms of taking a census, of depending upon something or someone uh, other than God. And I take responsibility for this. And then we can even model for them what repentance looks like. What is the result? Is God's mercy. Can I, I am implore you, can we make this what we long for? Let's pray for a, let's, let's pray that scientists come up with a vaccine. I've been praying for that fervently. Let's pray that people will, will do physical distancing and that this won't spread any more than it already has. But at the end of the day, where our salvation truly lies is in the mercy of God. And this is what we pray for. This is what we ultimately long for. Because after this virus is gone, we still are all going to stand before God to give account. And it's to his mercy that we cry out for. Let's pray. Father, we choose to fear you and not a virus. We fear you. And so we humble ourselves. 
we pray and we seek your face and we repent from our wicked ways. We stop blaming. We stop minimizing. We stop uh, saying that uh, we're not that bad. We stop all that so that you will hear from heaven and will forgive our sin and heal our land. Would you please, in this time, work in our heart a deep awareness of our own sinfulness and our deep need for the mercy of God. For it's to, it's to you that we cry out, for in your name alone is there salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.